Transportation is a journey connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. On today's podcast, we'll be exploring with Gloria Jeff, the director of Rethinking I-94 at the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Prior to that, Gloria served as a transportation planner at the Wichita Area MPO, Associate Director of Transportation Operations Administration at the D.C. DOT, VP of Parsons Brinkerhoff and Deputy Administrator of the FHWA. She's also the chair of TRB's Standing Technical Committee on Environmental Justice Issues in Transportation. So we're going to talk about equity uh, in transportation, which is something we're luckily hearing much more and more about, it seems like these days. But why don't we start out, Gloria, with you painting us some sort of broad strokes about how do transportation planners consider equity? And, and maybe how should they consider equity if those two things are, are different? I think that transportation planners uh, need to reflect a recognition that in the past we wanted to do the right thing and the right thing was get people from point A to point B safely and quickly without regard to what did it take to get people safely from point A to point B. One of the things that transportation planners should think about in thinking about equity is that equity does not equal equality. Just because I spend the same amount of money in location A as I did in location B does not mean that location A got the same benefits that location B did. Did I care about the people who were along that transportation project, whether it was a new roadway, whether it was enhancement of existing capacities on a highway, whether it was a new transit route, where there's a light rail line now in place where there hadn't previously been one. Is there some new aspect of the port? What is it that is around that particular transportation project? And while the state's economy or that city's economy or that metropolitan area's economy may benefit very well, and that's a good thing, the impact to those who live immediately next to or in the vicinity of that transportation project may not be the same. I grew up in Detroit and my godparents lived near one of the new freeway construction routes that had been identified. And there were three promises made to them. Promise number one was we're gonna tear down this substandard housing. Promise number two is that we're gonna rebuild new And promise number three was that it was going to be affordable. And this was done in collaboration between highway reconstruction and the urban renewal programs. Well, two of the three promises got kept. And so what happened was, yes, it was great for the city of Detroit to have this new multi-vehicle, thousands of vehicles a day per lane facility to be built. It meant that the automobile industry was gonna be able to move its workers between shifts quickly and efficiently. They were gonna be able to lower their transportation costs to move the finished products. But at the end of the day, they displaced a very large self-contained community of African-Americans. And so in this context, being the Trekkie that I am, 
the needs of the many outweighed the needs of the few. And in this context, we ended up with a bad thing. And that wasn't unique to Detroit. That was true in pick your favorite metropolitan area in America where interstate was built. And that is what transportation planners need to think about. Not just what do we have to do to safely and efficiently, but who benefits from those decisions? Who gets good things and who carries the burdens? That's what transportation planners really need to focus on. We're really good at how do we locate new transportation facilities. We're real good at identifying the economic benefits to the metropolitan area or to the state. What we're not good at is looking at the human environment. You mentioned that uh, growing up, two out of the three things that were promised to the community that the interstate was cutting through were met. It sounds illegal to even make promises that are going to be part of a plan and then and not meet those promises. What happened? What happened was NEPA didn't exist at the time. There was no statutory authority that said, if you make these promises, you have to keep these promises. They did keep the promise of, of eliminating the substandard housing. They did keep the promise of building new. What they didn't do was keep the promise of making it affordable. The idea was, was there comparable priced housing somewhere in the metropolitan area? Well, sure there was. There's always substandard housing somewhere in a metropolitan area. May not be convenient for the folks who live there, who previously lived in the other location. It may not satisfy their transportation needs, but yes, there's additional housing somewhere. And so I think, wasn't around other than being an eight or nine-year-old at the time, wasn't around when those decisions got made, but I'm sometimes accused of being Pollyannish. I don't believe folks intended to do bad. They just did bad. So skipping forward to today, how much progress do you think you've, you've seen? Do you think it's been real progress? And is there an agency, a transportation agency at the city or state level that has done particularly well along the lines of improving transportation equity I think I should preface it with, there's a lot of attention in the last two years. The murder of George Floyd brought a lot of attention to the idea that we really do live in two Americas, one black and one white, or one people of color and one white. I think that we need to recognize our history. We need to recognize that there was discrimination, that there were disproportionate impacts, and look at why, understand why, not with the idea that we're going to go back in time and fix all of those, but as we move forward, looking at those lessons, because a people who does not know its history is destined to repeat it. So understand what went wrong and then say, how do we avoid those pitfalls in the future? I think that moving forward, planners need to think about equity as a pizza with a bunch of slices in it. One of the slices is gender. One of the slices is ethnicity. One of the slices is race. One of the slices is your abilities. One of the slices is geography. One of the slices is what mode of movement are you engaged in? Another slice is travel purpose. Having been the mother of teenage males who were gym rats, 
I understand the desire of teenage males to take the pizza and inhale it all at once. But even the ultimate eating machine, which is a teenage male, can't do that. And so they end up having to eat it quickly, but one slice at a time. And I think that's the key with equity. There is some intersectionality. So sometimes when you peel the piece that's raised, you also end up getting part of the green peppers or part of the pepperoni or part of whatever it is you have on your pizza on that slice. And so you deal with the slice that's raised, but you also have to deal with the slice when you do race of geography and that you have to deal with the slice of differing abilities and you have to deal with the slice of different modes and different land uses. And so while you don't eat the whole pizza all at once, you get a flavor of it as you go through each of the slices, but eventually you consume the entire pizza. That's equity. It's that approach that has to be taken. It can't be, okay, we'll go deal with the race issue and we've solved our equity problem. No, we haven't. But if we don't address the race issue, then we haven't really truly addressed equity. One of the states that I'm aware of that is leading the effort is the state of Massachusetts. They are beginning to do measurements when they look at projects at both transit and on the roadway side. They won't even place them into their long-range plans until it's gone through an equity analysis. They don't make dollars available until it's gone through an equity analysis. It's an important first step. In Minnesota, we're beginning to look at this issue, especially in the context of workforce, and not just in terms of who we hire to do the work for MnDOT, but what does our employee workforce look like? And the idea there being, because of the variety of life experiences that people bring to the table, we need to make sure that we represent that in the context of the citizens of the state of Minnesota. The upper Midwest states, the uh, Mid-America Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials have also made it a priority. So I think that in the next couple years, we're going to see a lot of attention to it. Now, I need to do a blatant plug. The Transportation Research Board is sponsoring a conference on advancing transportation equity. It's going to be held virtually. It's going to be held on September 13th and 14th, and the week before on the 9th and the 10th. And so I encourage everybody go to go to the TRB website. It's on their calendar of events. Because it's virtual, you don't have to worry about travel. The registration fee is, in the context of TRB, nominal. So everybody, you want to know about transportation equity? Come on to the conference on the 9th, the 10th, the 13th, and the 14th. Do it from the comfort of your home office, from the comfort of your work office, from the comfort of your vacation site, but come on and learn a lot about transportation equity. We're excited. We have panels that include representatives from the Buttigieg um, administration at USDOT, which is really beginning to focus on this issue of equity in a meaningful way, diversity and inclusion. We'll have uh, research papers that look at everything from transit to the disproportionate impacts to economic activities. Just come on in and learn all you didn't know you needed to know about equity and to get some ideas about how to translate that into your state or local government practices, how you advise clients if you're a transportation consultant, and more importantly, if you're just a curious student 
come on in. There's an opportunity to learn. Yes, thank you for that plug. And I loved that pizza analogy. I thought that was brilliant. And as you know, you, you mentioned this a little bit already, transportation does have a history of discriminatory practices such as redlining or where they happen to plan bus routes. And it's expensive often to redirect these highways or in some cases build new ones and add bus stops or redirect bus stops. So how would you go about righting these previous wrongs of transportation inequity in an affordable way? I think that I would start with the premise that I'm not trying to undo the wrongs of the past. I am trying to address restorative justice. How do we move forward from those? One, how do we acknowledge them? And two, how do we move forward? We do that by, again, acknowledging that property covenants, redlining was an important part of the interstate construction. Inexpensive was also a big word in the interstate construction. And you got both of those when you went through communities where you didn't feel like people had any ability to influence your decisions. And that's why in many instances, communities of color were selected because they didn't have influence in the political process in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, They weren't as active as they are today in terms of making elected officials be held responsible. So in going forward, communities have to recognize who they are and what they want to do. Transportation providers, transportation owners need to have not just project level relationships, but ongoing relationships with their communities where they talk to people on a regular. The people in the community know them because they show up to pick your favorite community-based activities where the community comes out and they get to see oh, so-and-so from the Department of Transportation is here. And they aren't there plugging a project. They're there as wanting to understand the, the issues and concerns. The second thing that transportation agencies need to do is they need to recognize that sometimes their education doesn't trump the experience of the folks who live in the community. We're all, as transportation professionals, we are all well-educated whether we're engineers, whether we're planners, whether we're research, we have initials after our names. Uh, We don't always recognize that the initials after our names don't trump the lived experience. Grandma may not have a PMP, PTOE after her name, but she knows how long it takes her to get across the street. And she is not impressed with the fact that we can talk about all of the elements of the traffic cycle that sets the timing for how long. All she says is, baby, I'm not Flojo. I can't get across the street in the time you've allocated. Make it longer. And we need to give value to that input. It is important that we have our processes and methodologies, but they need to be informed not just by the numbers, but by the people. If we want to do the numbers game, let's do that. If we are in a community that is 75% individuals over the age of 65, then maybe the traffic signals walk cycles need to be a little bit longer because buried within that over 60 are individuals with slower gates, slower rates of movement, processing. And so we need to think about what are the abilities if we are doing construction? And this is one of my favorite examples. Transportation is a journey 
connecting us in our everyday lives. This podcast series, TRB's Transportation Explorers, takes you on that journey with meaningful conversations with the experts behind the research. They often have an early eye on how we'll build the transportation of tomorrow. Hi, I'm Elaine Farrell. And I'm Paul Mackey with the Transportation Research Board of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine based in Washington, D.C. On today's podcast, we'll be exploring with Gloria Jeff, the director of Rethinking I-94 at the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Prior to that, Gloria served as a transportation planner at the Wichita Area MPO, Associate Director of Transportation Operations Administration at the D.C. DOT, VP at Parsons Brinkerhoff and Deputy Administrator of the FHWA. She's also the chair of TRB's Standing Technical Committee on Environmental Justice Issues in Transportation. So we're going to talk about equity uh, in transportation, which is something we're luckily hearing much more and more about, it seems like these days. But why don't we start out, Gloria, with you painting us some sort of broad strokes about how do transportation planners consider equity? And, and maybe how should they consider equity if those two things are, are different? I think that transportation planners uh, need to reflect a recognition that in the past we wanted to do the right thing. And the right thing was get people from point A to point B safely and quickly without regard to what did it take to get people safely from point A to point B. One of the things that transportation planners should think about in thinking about equity is that equity does not equal equality. Just because I spend the same amount of money in location A as I did in location B does not mean that location A got the same benefits that location B did. Did I care about the people who were along that transportation project, whether it was a new roadway, whether it was enhancement of existing capacities on a highway, whether it was a new transit route where there's a light rail line now in place where there hadn't previously been one. Is there some new aspect of the port? What is it that is around that particular transportation project? And while the state's economy or that city's economy or that metropolitan area's economy may benefit very well, and that's a good thing, the impact to those who live immediately next to or in the vicinity of that transportation project may not be the same. I grew up in Detroit and my godparents lived near one of the new freeway construction routes that had been identified. And there were three promises made to them. Promise number one was we're gonna tear down this substandard housing. Promise number two is that we're gonna rebuild new And promise number three was that it was going to be affordable. And this was done in collaboration between highway reconstruction and the urban renewal programs. Well, two of the three promises got kept. And so what happened was, yes, it was great for the city of Detroit to have this new multi-vehicle, thousands of vehicles a day per lane facility to be built. It meant that the automobile industry was going to be able to move its workers between shifts quickly and efficiently. They were going to be able to lower their transportation costs to move the finished products. But at the end of the day, they displaced a very large self-contained community of African-Americans. And so in this context, being the Trekkie that I am, the needs of the many 
outweighed the needs of the few. And in this context, we ended up with a bad thing. And that wasn't unique to Detroit. That was true in pick your favorite metropolitan area in America where interstate was built. And that is what transportation planners need to think about. Not just what do we have to do to safely and efficiently, but who benefits from those decisions? Who gets good things and who carries the burdens? That's what transportation planners really need to focus on. We're really good at how do we locate new transportation facilities. We're real good at identifying the economic benefits to the metropolitan area or to the state. What we're not good at is looking at the human environment. You mentioned that uh, growing up, two out of the three things that were promised to the community that the interstate was cutting through were met. It sounds illegal to even make promises that are going to be part of a plan and then and not meet those promises. What happened? What happened was NEPA didn't exist at the time. There was no statutory authority that said, if you make these promises, you have to keep these promises. They did keep the promise of, of eliminating the substandard housing. They did keep the promise of building new. What they didn't do was keep the promise of making it affordable. The idea was, was there comparable priced housing somewhere in the metropolitan area? Well, sure there was. There's always substandard housing somewhere in a metropolitan area. May not be convenient for the folks who live there, who previously lived in the other location. It may not satisfy their transportation needs, but yes, there's additional housing somewhere. And so I think wasn't around other than being an eight or nine year old at the time, wasn't around when those decisions got made, but I'm sometimes accused of being Pollyannish. I don't believe folks intended to do bad. They just did bad. So skipping forward to today, how much progress do you think you've, you've seen? Do you think it's been real progress? And is there an agency, a transportation agency at the city or state level that has done particularly well along the lines of improving transportation equity I think I should preface it with, there's a lot of attention in the last two years. The murder of George Floyd brought a lot of attention to the idea that we really do live in two Americas, one black and one white, or one people of color and one white. I think that we need to recognize our history. We need to recognize that there was discrimination, that there were disproportionate impacts, and look at why, understand why, not with the idea that we're gonna go back in time and fix all of those, but as we move forward, looking at those lessons because a people who does not know its history is destined to repeat it. So understand what went wrong and then say, how do we avoid those pitfalls in the future? I think that moving forward, planners need to think about equity as a pizza with a bunch of slices in it. One of the slices is gender. One of the slices is ethnicity. One of the slices is race. One of the slices is your abilities. One of the slices is geography. One of the slices is what mode of movement are you engaged in? Another slice is travel purpose. Having been the mother of teenage males who were gym rats, I understand the desire of teenage males to take the pizza and inhale it 
all at once. But even the ultimate eating machine, which is a teenage male, can't do that. And so they end up having to eat it quickly, but one slice at a time. And I think that's the key with equity. There is some intersectionality. So sometimes when you peel the piece that's race, you also end up getting part of the green peppers or part of the pepperoni or part of whatever it is you have on your pizza on that slice. And so you deal with the slice that's race, but you also have to deal with the slice when you do race of geography and that you have to deal with the slice of differing abilities and you have to deal with the slice of different modes and different land uses. And so while you don't eat the whole pizza all at once, you get a flavor of it as you go through each of the slices, but eventually you consume the entire pizza. That's equity. It's that approach that has to be taken. It can't be, okay, we'll go deal with the race issue and we've solved our equity problem. No, we haven't. But if we don't address the race issue, then we haven't really truly addressed equity. One of the states that I'm aware of that is leading the effort is the state of Massachusetts. They are beginning to do measurements when they look at projects at both transit and on the roadway side. They won't even place them into their long-range plans until it's gone through an equity analysis. They don't make dollars available until it's gone through an equity analysis. It's an important first step. In Minnesota, we're beginning to look at this issue, especially in the context of workforce, and not just in terms of who we hire to do the work for MnDOT, but what does our employee workforce look like? The idea there being, because of the variety of life experiences that people bring to the table, we need to make sure that we represent that in the context of the citizens of the state of Minnesota. The upper Midwest states, the uh, Mid-America Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials have also made it a priority. So I think that in the next couple years, we're going to see a lot of attention to it. Now, I need to do a blatant plug. The Transportation Research Board is sponsoring a conference on advancing transportation equity. It's going to be held virtually. It's going to be held on September 13th and 14th and the week before on the 9th and the 10th. And so I encourage everybody go to go to the TRB website. It's on their calendar of events because it's virtual. You don't have to worry about travel. The registration fee is in the context of TRB nominal. So everybody, you want to know about transportation equity? Come on to the conference on the 9th, the 10th, the 13th and the 14th. Do it from the comfort of your home office, from the comfort of your work office, from the comfort of your vacation site, but come on and learn a lot about transportation equity. We're excited. We have panels that include representatives from the Buttigieg um, administration at USDOT, which is really beginning to focus on this issue of equity in a meaningful way, diversity and inclusion. We'll have uh, research papers that look at everything from transit to the disproportionate impacts to economic activities. Just come on in and learn all you didn't know you needed to know about equity and to get some ideas about how to translate that into your state or local government practices, how you advise clients if you're a transportation consultant, and more importantly, if you're just a curious student, come on in. There's an opportunity to learn.
Yes, thank you for that plug. And I loved that pizza analogy. I thought that was brilliant. And as you know, you, you mentioned this a little bit already, transportation does have a history of discriminatory practices such as redlining or where they happen to plan bus routes. And it's expensive often to redirect these highways or in some cases build new ones and add bus stops or redirect bus stops. So how would you go about righting these previous wrongs of transportation inequity in an affordable way? I think that I would start with the premise that I'm not trying to undo the wrongs of the past. I am trying to address restorative justice. How do we move forward? From those, one, how do we acknowledge them? And two, how do we move forward? We do that by, again, acknowledging that property covenants, redlining was an important part of the interstate construction. Inexpensive was also a big word in the interstate construction. And you got both of those when you went through communities where you didn't feel like people had any ability to influence your decisions. And that's why in many instances, communities of color were selected because they didn't have influence in the political process in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, They weren't as active as they are today in terms of making elected officials be held responsible. So in going forward, communities have to recognize who they are and what they wanna do. Transportation providers, transportation owners need to have not just project level relationships, but ongoing relationships with their communities where they talk to people on a regular. The people in the community know them because they show up to pick your favorite community-based activities where the community comes out and they get to see, oh, so-and-so from the Department of Transportation is here. And they aren't there plugging a project. They're there as wanting to understand the, the issues and concerns. The second thing that transportation agencies need to do is they need to recognize that sometimes their education doesn't trump the experience of the folks who live in the community. We're all, as transportation professionals, we are all well-educated, whether we're engineers, whether we're planners, whether we're research, we have initials after our names. Uh, We don't always recognize that the initials after our names don't trump the lived experience. Grandma may not have a PMP, PTOE after her name, but she knows how long it takes her to get across the street. And she is not impressed with the fact that we can talk about all of the elements of the traffic cycle that sets the timing for how long. All she says is, baby, I'm not Flojo. I can't get across the street in the time you've allocated. Make it longer. And we need to give value to that input. It is important that we have our processes and methodologies, but they need to be informed not just by the numbers, but by the people. If we want to do the numbers game, let's do that. If we are in a community that is 75% individuals over the age of 65, then maybe the traffic signals walk cycles need to be a little bit longer because buried within that over 60 are individuals with slower gates, slower rates of movement, processing. And so we need to think about what are the abilities? If we are doing construction, and this is one of my favorite examples, if we're doing construction along a corridor and there are schools there, 
pay attention to whether or not there's a high school or if it's an elementary school. High schoolers are purported to have critical thinking skills. Having raised teenagers, I'm not always sure about that, but they are purported to have critical thinking skills. Whereas the, the K through two grade level, and they're sort of sitting there going, oh, that construction equipment that you left locked up behind locked fences look like they're tinker toys that they play with, except they're giant sized. And tinker toys can't hurt them. Imagine I see my favorite bulldozer or what looks like my favorite bulldozer that's soft and squishy and I can put in my hand. And now it's in giant size and it's parked in this lot. Am I going to figure out a way to get over that fence or under that fence or around that fence to get to my favorite big tinker toy? Absolutely. Think about where are we mobilizing our equipment? Something many of us in the construction industry don't translate, even if we have children. So it's thinking about those human pieces that we have to focus on going forward. I think it's interesting that you pointed out uh, what we don't necessarily think about or what engineers don't necessarily think about because it's not something they can always measure. Engineers tend to be very objective. And as you're saying, I think it's important to keep in mind that these things that we have issues with that we need to figure out, there's not always an objective answer, or at least that's not all of it. I think that's the critical piece. It's not all of it. As a profession, we have to acknowledge that we are not as representative as we would like to be or ought to be. And so in that context, the life experiences of our workforce become an important part of how we deal with communities of color. And we need to understand and respect their culture. And that's not something we're often taught. And so being in that community helps us to learn about their culture, to appreciate the things that are important to them. It's a hard job being a transportation planner, for sure, because you really come from that academic background. And I, how, how would you set up a transportation planning group within an agency? It sounds like you just really need to have people, of course, of all backgrounds, but people with you know, sociology training and people who can get out in the community and talk to people because you know you're you're going to go to county board meetings or or something like that. And it almost sounds the way you've been describing it that you need a really versatile team that has a lot of different backgrounds, not necessarily always with the strict transportation planning engineering background. Is did I hear that pretty accurately? Absolutely. That's exactly true. One example is the project that one of the projects I'm working on here in Minnesota, the Rethinking I-94 project. It started out as a project where the Commissioner of Transportation did a public apology for the construction of it and the damage that it did to a primarily African-American community in the 1960s. The next step in the process is one where rather than doing the, okay, let's identify what the transportation needs are, how bad is the pavement, what bridges are out of compliance with current standards, uh, what do we have to do about retaining wall conditions, et cetera. Minnesota DOT spent two years talking to the communities along this 15 mile long corridor. They asked them, what are, you, what are your transportation needs? How do you see transportation working? Then they ask questions like, why do you live here? Why do you stay here? Where did you come from? What are the pressing community issues? What are the things that matter to you as a community? 
after two years, the Minnesota Department of Transportation had a comprehensive view and information about the community, some of which was the traditional so many households with four kids, pick your favorite set of standard demographics. But they also had a picture of what are the businesses? Why are they there? Who are these people? What matters to them? And yes, we've got this roadway that we're going to do some work on, but how is that going to impact them? And so after two years, we then began the process of saying, what does it look like? And we produced a document that is called a zone profile. We divided the corridor into roughly six corridors, six sections, I should say, along the corridor. And in it, you have a comprehensive picture, not just of demographics, but of the six sections along this roadway. And that's what I would do, of course, scale it. I mean, this is a very large, complex, and very costly project. Scale it, but have transportation groups begin to recognize it's not just an engineering problem. It's not just a planning solution. And some of the answers don't lie strictly within the Department of Transportation. There are three sort of basic roles that state Department of Transportations can play. The first is that of, yes, there are places and activities where we're the leader. We are the leader on, did you need to fix the highway? Did you need to fix whatever the state road is? And we've got statutory authority to do a whole bunch of stuff. Then there's the role we have where we're partners, where yes, in order to get our statutory stuff done, we need to partner with local units of governments and neighborhoods in order to make it happen. There's a third role though, which is a facilitator role. And there are times when we have absolutely no statutory authority to fix something. For example, land use. We don't have any authority over land use, planning, policies. We have no authority over housing. You know, there are a number of community values over which we have no statutory authority. But most state DOTs tend to be the 800-pound gorilla in their state or in a metropolitan area, because we have, in some people's minds, lots and lots of money. As a practitioner, that's not true, but the perception is there nonetheless. You know, affordable housing is not an issue we have statutory authority to do anything about, but the local economic development folks, the state economic development folks, housing folks, they'll show up if the Department of Transportation calls a meeting because we might have some money that might fall off the table their way, or at least the perception is that. And they'll show up to at least one meeting. And so what we've done is we've gotten the right cast of characters in the room. We may try and lay out elements of the challenge and then sit back while those who have the authority, the resources, and the skills to get it done, get it done. But those are three roles that departments of modern departments of transportation need to embrace. It's not an overly expensive thing to do. Just uh, the other day, I received a postcard from my city, Tacoma Park, Maryland, that said, please go online and fill out our transportation questionnaire survey. So I was really happy to see that because that's a great way to get public input in a different way than maybe has been done in the past. It is a great way in dealing with equity, diversity, and inclusion issues. What you have to do is make sure that those are the mechanisms that work with that particular group of of individuals. One of the elements of our zone profile is we did a market segmentation study as well so that we were able to identify the most effective ways to communicate and what are the kinds of outcomes that folks want. So yeah, we need to get postcards out, but it also means 
you know what, if the weekly track meet at the high school is one of the hot spots of the neighborhood, we need to show up at the track meet, not, oh, we're having a meeting at five o'clock in the afternoon at the state DOT facilities, please come. It's more like, hey, you already there? We'll table there and let's have a conversation with you. And we may give you a postcard to fill out, but we also know that we've, that we've done the appropriate sampling or oversampling in many instances of Black, Indigenous, and people of color because their participation isn't as robust always as folks like the Secretary of Transportation for the U.S. Department. So speaking of the Secretary of Transportation, if you were in charge of the federal transportation policy, what one or two policy decisions do you think you would make to implement equitable transportation at a federal level? If I were the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation, I would begin my first policy by building on the work of my predecessor in this hypothetical circumstance of Anthony Fox. I think the Secretary Fox did a great job of beginning to acknowledge and move forward programs that said transportation is about more than moving people from point A to point B in a safe and efficient way. It is about more than just supporting the economy by making sure that goods and finished products and raw materials are able to quickly and efficiently move from point A to point B. It would be focusing on the communities as a whole. I would revitalize, re-energize the partnership between the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Environmental Protection Agency, and Housing and Urban Development, and pull that group back together again and say, let's find ways to work together and move forward. That would be my first act. My second act would be to specifically appoint an individual and a support team that would focus on this issue of not just how do we do Title VI civil rights requirements, not just provide compliance with the executive order, but that we really put together a concerted effort, bringing together the resources, the slices of the pizza together so that we are able to have a coherent program moving forward. Those are the two things that I would do if I were USDOT secretary. That sounds amazing. We got to figure out how to uh, slide this podcast under uh, Secretary Buttigieg's door because it really it really does take a village, not to be cliche, but I think it, it will take a village. This is a, this is a big issue with a lot of work still to be done on. Maybe it all started with pizza for you, but how did you get into transportation? How did you get interested in transportation? It probably wasn't as early as back when the the interstate was cutting through people you love's neighborhoods. Tell us how you did it. Well, yes and no, interestingly enough. The little kid in me didn't understand why my godparents had been treated this way. And with childlike innocence, I asked who's responsible. And I was told urban planners. In my, my mind, I was like, I want to be one of those so this doesn't happen again. Again, this is an eight or nine-year-old who thinks that, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to solve the world. In the subsequent years, I got interested in transportation. I wanted to be an astronaut, and I wanted to be able to fly into space. And since no one went into space who looked like me, I figured the solution was for me to design a rocket ship that only I could fly so I could get to do it. So I watched the space program with great interest and consumed every piece of science fiction I could find. 
What really happened was my senior year of high school, I had a personal catharsis. My relationship with my beliefs really began to take front and center. And I really prayed about and got direction on what ought to be my future. And at that point, it was, I'm going to become an urban planner one day, but in the interim, I'm going to teach social studies because they're sort of related. And lo and behold, it was, no, you will be an engineer. And I was like, what? And I knew that it was divine intervention because I grew up in, like I said, in Detroit and the top school in the state is University of Michigan. Well, lo and behold, not only is my Sunday school teacher a University of Michigan grad, but he's a grad of the engineering school. So when I told him I wanted to become an engineer, I had an instant support system and transportation became the choice within that urban planning, transportation, engineering, because transportation touches people every day in every aspect of their life. I don't care if you are a toddler who wants to go get ice cream from the ice cream truck that's driving by, if you're an adult trying to get to or from work, if you are the grandparent who just wants to go visit their neighbors, transportation matters. And so I got hooked on transportation. By the time I got out of grad school, that was my focus. And so I went to work for the regional transit agency and have been in transportation ever since. I've always told folks, if you want to punish me, you really want to punish me and hurt me, make me do something that's not transportation related as a professional career. So that's how I got into transportation. And now many years later, I describe myself as a quintessential transportation junkie. I've worked at all levels of government. I've worked on the private sector side. I've worked on the, in the education arena. I've been involved in international transportation activities. I love transportation. I think it is the one thing that cuts across every attribute of human existence. As a transportation junkie and an active member of TRB, what do you think is further needed on transportation equity? I mean, you've already addressed a lot of things, but if you could say tomorrow we need to start this project, what would that be? I would start with having encouraged everybody, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level, to examine their transportation project development processes and don't introduce equity at the project level. It's too late because you've already made decisions about where projects are going to be, what their outcomes need to be, you've allocated dollars. You need to start at the very beginning of the planning and policy stages. When you're looking at what do we want to do out over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years and make equity the cornerstone. We know how to construct bridges. What we don't know how to do well is this issue of addressing equity. And sometimes we, we try and do it easy, which is, oh, we did engagement. We talked to those people. Well, no, it isn't enough to talk to those people. It's do we understand how and when and why they do need to use transportation? And what are the barriers and what are the benefits? And we have to do that at the very beginning of the process. So by the time we get down to an individual project, yes, there are equity issues there, but the big picture equity. Have we taken that huge pizza with all of its toppings on it and now address, have those been addressed by the time we get to the slice that we're going to try and eat? 
Normally, I would ask if there's anything else uh, that you want to mention that you that you haven't mentioned. You can you can do that if you like. But I was sort of curious for transportation junkies out there. Do you have a, a sci-fi book or or movie or something that we all need to see? I'm a little bit of a sci-fi fan myself, but uh, I'd love to have a, a recommendation for the end of the summer. That's a good question. I think my personal favorite is a book called Kindred by Octavia Butler. And it's a fascinating combination of science fiction, historic fiction, and it focuses on a character who is a resident of the 1970s, 1980s California, who gets yanked back in time to slavery. And the methodologies by which he gets to move back and forth are fascinating. So as a sci-fi person, take a look at Kindred. One last thing I guess I have to say that I haven't said is, as with any profession, transportation has its outstanding components, things that we do really well, things that we ought to be really proud of. And there are things that we didn't do well in retrospect. The key is to acknowledge those past things we didn't do well, remember them so that as we move forward, that we don't move forward with just good intentions because the interstate was always built with good intentions, but bad mistakes were made. Let us acknowledge that we need to look not just at what the ultimate objective is, but how individuals, whether they're businesses or people or communities are gonna be impacted by the decisions we make because in there we find the key to making sure that our system is not just efficient, not just safe, that is critically equitable. Thank you again for joining us today, Gloria. And thank you so much for all your hard work, being a transportation thought leader in general, but for being such a great active volunteer with TRB. We really appreciate it. TRB's Transportation Explorers is a production of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Ben Brown composed our theme music. The podcast is produced by Paul Mackey and me, Elaine Farrell, and edited by me. Thanks again for tuning into TRB's Transportation Explorers. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. See you next time on the transportation journey.